And before you turn, some of you are already there, it's okay. Uh, if everyone could look at me for a moment. This is something we do week in and week out. It's a gathering of God's people. I not know the love of God, and so I just want to communicate before we start going through a passage of Scripture that if you know and you feel, you're, you know that you have not obeyed the Creator of the world. We just sung a song about Him sending His Son, God Himself, to come and die for sinners. Your acceptance with God is not based on you cleaning yourself up. Your acceptance with God is not based on, okay, now I'll start obeying. Your acceptance with God is by receiving the sacrifice of His Son, believing in His Son, Jesus Christ, who came to die for you and to give you eternal life, and that's proven by the fact that He rose from the dead. So if you feel guilty today, feel distance from God, I would encourage you to trust in what Jesus came to do. And if you do that, acknowledge your sin, trust in His forgiveness, you are innocent in His eyes. So please understand that. All right, first First Corinthians 13, committal of these two surrounding chapters on spiritual gifts, chapter 12 and chapter 14, where Paul writes by what these gifts are, how they're to be used, how they're not to be used, how they're supposed to be understood. And to some, it might seem as if kind of forgot the sermon he wanted to preach on love, so he kind of interrupts the spiritual gifts discussion and says, oh yeah, by the way, let me kind of give you a sermon on love. But First uh, Corinthians 13 is is the, the truth that holds 12 and 14 together. We'll understand spiritual gifts rightly. We'll use them rightly if we have this glue of love that keeps us together. So this is kind of the central part of his argument on spiritual gifts. I've entitled this message, The Excellence of Love, and please follow along as I read 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong, and if I have prophetic powers, all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. And if I deliver up my body, but have not love, love is patient and kind. Love does not, not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we profit. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love remain, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Again, the excellence of love you can have an immature church theologically 
assuming that that church is built on the accurate gospel of Jesus Christ. So you can have people who are in the kingdom of God because of what Christ has done on the cross and because of His resurrection, and they trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Then beyond that, they don't know much theologically. You can have an immature church with little depth to their theological knowledge who can grow rapidly in maturity. You can also have a church where people have lots of theological knowledge in their head, but without love, eased, and even immature. Now, they would think of themselves as mature by all that they know, but with a lack of love, there is actually immaturity. Paul writes to an immature church who often prized themselves, prided themselves on their knowledge. That's the church at Corinth. Paul actually writes to Timothy, the pastor at the church at Ephesus in 1 Timothy 1, and says the aim of our charge, the aim of our instruction, the reason that we teach God's people, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart. The goal of our instruction isn't just more knowledge. It's knowledge leading to more love of God and more love of others. That's the goal. Recently, John MacArthur was asked the question, about what to look for in a church. So you're looking for a local church. What do I look for? I thought his answer was helpful. He said, when you're looking for a church, you're looking past the doctrine, past the theology. How much affection do these people, how much love do they demonstrate? And then he quotes 1 Timothy 1. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. The Word of God purifies the heart. And what is set loose in the heart is the fruit of the Spirit, which is love. People say, I want to find a church that's doctrinally sound. Well, that's fine, but it's got to go beyond that. The doctrine has to have a dramatic impact on the heart. Love. Jesus told his disciples, the world will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. So Paul teaches in this chapter that love is the excellent attribute. Love is what is supreme, the priority. It's what is excellent. This church lacked it, the church at Corinth, and so he writes to demonstrate to them that love is, in fact, what they need, and it is the excellent virtue or the more excellent way, as he says at the end of chapter 12. As you know, we've been going through this book, and we know that this church was often stumbled by their pride in chapter 8, verse 1, Paul says that their knowledge has puffed them up, and he desires that they would have a love that builds one another up. And so he writes, and he gives, in our English Bibles, three paragraphs, so we'll use that as our outline, three proofs of the excellence of love. Three proofs of the excellence of love. Then verses 1 through 3, love is absolutely necessary. In other words, you can't do without it. That alone shows how excellent it is, how needed it is, how required it is. Love is absolutely necessary. Now, he's going to list some extreme examples, some hyperbole, if you will, to demonstrate that we can't do without love. Remember, these people misunderstood spiritual gifts. They prized all of these miraculous speaking gifts, the gift of tongues, prophecy, 
even the knowledge they had as teachers. They prized all of these public gifts, looked down on people who didn't have them. And so Paul's going to take those gifts to the extreme. If I could speak in the language that angels speak, if I didn't just prophesy once in a while, but if I knew everything that God knew, if I was the greatest teacher because of all the knowledge I had and didn't have love, it'd be nothing. So he uses hyperbolic rhetoric in these first three verses to demonstrate how important love is. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Again, if I could go and join the angels in whatever language they speak to God in, probably not English, who knows what it is, but if I knew the angels' language and I could speak that directly to God like they are around the throne of heaven, if I could speak that and didn't have love, I would just be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You ever heard a child learning to play the drums? <laughs> practicing, 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 noisy gong, clanging cymbal. It's not always the most pleasant thing to the ear. Verse 2, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge… Remember what the gift of prophecy was. It was given to the early church before the Scriptures were given to guide them in what they needed to know, what they needed to understand. It was spontaneous, it was infallible, and it was given to certain people in the church. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, so he's not just saying, if I just prophesy every now and then, but if I always know the mind of God in every single situation… If I have all knowledge, understand all mysteries, all connections of the old covenant to the new, all things that need to be revealed, if I know all of that, and if I have all faith, if I have such a faith in God that I could literally move a mountain from one place to the next, again, you, see, you hear the, hyper, the hyperbole in all this, if I have all of that but have not love, I'm nothing. He doesn't say… I'm somewhat worthwhile, but maybe not all the way. I'm nothing. He's showing that love is absolutely necessary. And in verse 3, if I give away all I have to the poor, is the understanding. If I give away all I have to those in need, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, so if I give all of my possessions away, if I'm the most philanthropic person in the world, if I'm the most giving and charitable person in the world, but there's no love that drives that. There's no reward for me. I gain nothing. If I deliver up my body to be burned, if, I, if I'm the perfect martyr, I stand there, I stand in the flames. I stand for Christ, but it's not out of love for Him or even love for others. There's no reward for that. I gain nothing. So, he's showing here the necessity of love. Now, as we know, the Corinthians weren't the only ones that had a love problem. The disciples themselves had a love problem, right? The first followers of Jesus, the first 12 that He chose to be His nearest friends, nearest companions, they had a love problem as well. In a passage that we often go back to, John 13 to 17, because it's so instructive and so important for us to understand as a 21st century church, that whole section, John 13, 1, starts off with these words, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world, He knew He was about to die. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So, John 13, the upper room discourse, starts off by showing us Jesus' love for his own disciples. 
And it was going to be a love to continue on to the end. In that upper room discourse, he told them these words. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Consider my love for you, Peter, Bartholomew, James. Consider my love for you and love one another in the same way. That's what God intended. So for the Christian today, it's important that we don't just relish the love of God for us, but that we realize that was never meant to stop with us. It was meant to come down to us and then be sent out to others. That's Jesus' plan. That's the goal. So if we at Canyon Bible Church of Prescott have a vibrant and instructive children's ministry but have not love, we're nothing. If we have populated Bible studies but have not love, we're nothing. If we are familiar with dangers of false teachers out there and can recite the Heidelberg Confession from memory but have not love, we're nothing. If we can meet physical needs had by the saints but have not love, we are nothing. If we can preach great sermons and teach faithful lessons but have not love, we are nothing. Love is absolutely necessary. So it's important for us to remember, as we looked at chapter 12 previously and looked at how the body serves one another, God does not require service alone. God requires service fueled by love for one another. It's not just what we do with our hands. It's what's true in our hearts. That's what leads us to do acts of service with our hands. Love is to fuel us. Love is absolutely necessary. There's a second proof that love is excellent. It's found in verses 4 to 7. Love is beautifully displayed. You see this in verses 4 to 7. This is the passage that you often hear at weddings or that you have hanging up in your house on a sign, appropriately so. Love is beautifully displayed. When you see these characteristics of love, you see beauty. You see something special. You see something glorious because it's so contrary to what we feel sometimes and what we see day in and day out in the world. Paul's going to demonstrate love's beauty. Starting in verse 4, love is patient. So love will live out a situation to the full. Love will see a wrong, experience a wrong, and say, I know this isn't the end. There's more to the story. Love's patient. And as you go through verses 4 to 7, you can't help but have Jesus Christ in mind, right? All of these characteristics demonstrated by Him. And again, it's a reminder back to John 15, as I've loved you, so you love one another. And here's Paul saying, here's what love is. And so you can rewind the tape and say, therefore, that's what Christ is. Love will live out the situation to the fullest. We'll continue on with people. It's patient. Love is kind. Kindness is a word today that we think little of sometimes. Even as Christians, if you listen to the media and even Christian media sometimes, it talks a lot about fighting, but not a lot about kindness. The Holy Spirit 
literally inspired this word, this characteristic to be understood by the followers of Christ. Love is meant to be kind. Love is meant to be tender-hearted, like Christ Himself was, is. The commentator Garland says, kindness recognizes that everyone carries a heavy load. Love is kind, tender-hearted, gentle, if you will. Love does not envy, in verse 4. Love's not jealous. So if you have a friend or a family member and you're seeking to demonstrate love, but you're extremely jealous of them, and therefore sometimes angered at your lot compared to theirs, that's not love. Because the focus there is on you, not on what's good for them. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Act in a vainglorious manner. There's a good old word. Vainglory. Love isn't focused on trying to make ourselves look good in people's eyes. Again, self is the focus there. And love continually looks away from self. Again, think of the love of Christ. How do you know the love of Christ? It's because He gave Himself as a sacrifice for someone else, for other people, for His church. He's looking at them, not His own glory. Love is not arrogant, similar to being Boastful love's not arrogant. Arrogance can destroy communities. So love builds up the building of Christ. Arrogance, as one writer said, blows up the building. Love builds up. How can I serve? How can I help? Arrogance says, I'm here and starts to destroy when people don't respond rightly to your supremacy, to how great you are. Arrogant people threaten the communities in which they join. New son-in-law joins a family. New arrogant son-in-law joins a family. Get ready for the fireworks. Arrogant Christian comes to a new church, either literally bringing his resume of all his accomplishments or her accomplishments, or just simply articulating them whenever possible. That's a threat right there. That's a danger to a church. Arrogance is the opposite of love in that sense. Verse 5, love is not rude. This has sexual overtones. Love doesn't behave indecently toward a brother or sister. Love does not insist on its own way. Again, this is written to a church community. I know we read this a lot at weddings, and that's great and appropriate. But the first and foremost, the first and foremost audience was a local church. And this is given to local churches. Love does not insist on its own way. I think that things should be done like this in this church. And if they're not, we're going to have problems. That's a lack of love. Does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or cantankerous. Love isn't easily irritated. This is often a characteristic of older men, but it exists in younger men and younger women and older women. All of us can be irritable, cantankerous. And I want you to recognize how dangerous this is. When people are cantankerous, others don't want to come near them. 
They, they keep their distance because they don't want to be yelled at or frowned at or, or scowled at. They don't want to annoy the cantankerous person, the irritable person. Being irritable, I think irritable people often think, well, I'm just standing for what's right. I'm, I'm just the way I am. Or whatever it may be, that's not something that draws people in. Brothers and sisters, is it possible that there are people around you in your life that are scared of you, scared of upsetting you? They don't want to approach you. They might even be your children. If there's been this type of irritation or being irritable, it would be good to acknowledge this to the Lord and then to them, to ask for forgiveness. See, love is, as we've said as the head of this point number two, love is beautifully displayed. Irritable people aren't beautiful and people are pushed away. People are drawn to beauty. People are drawn away from irritation. Love is not irritable. Love is not resentful. Your, your Bible may have the words, love does not keep a record of wrongs. That's, that's a good explanation of the word resentful. Love's not resentful or keeping a record of wrongs. Love doesn't constantly look at a person and see their wrongs first. Is there anybody in your life, in this church, in your family, you look at, and when you think of them, when their name comes up, you think of their flaws first? Love doesn't do that. But their flaws are so big. Yes, they have them just like you do, just like I do. And what do we want? We want people to see us for the grace of God that's in our life, what He's done that's good in our life, not our flaws. We hope that they would be gracious and overlook them and forgive them and bear with us. Same way we should treat them. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Either a literal record, some of you may have a literal record of someone's wrong, I would encourage you to burn that thing, (laughs) or it may just be in your head. Ask the Lord to remove it. Verse 6. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. This is probably a reference back to chapter 6 of Christians suing one another. Doesn't rejoice at things that are wrong. So you know what it's like when someone offends you and you, you act as if because they offended me, I can sin a little bit in response to it. I mean, God would forgive me. Look what they did to me. Love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. Love doesn't accept that as a as an appropriate way to respond to wrongdoing. But love rejoices with the truth. Truth is paramount. Love does what's right. Love loves what's right, what's pure, what's good, what's noble, what's true. Really, a facet of this is even when the truth is brought out about us in a situation. Instead of making excuses or lying or, no, that's not true, or I don't do that, acknowledging that is true. I do fall short there. And it's good that Christians can do that because we know that whenever we acknowledge sin and guilt and acknowledge it before the Father, there's forgiveness there. So we can rejoice in the truth coming out even when it's ugly, knowing that He forgives that and He changes us. Love rejoices in what's true, what's good. Verse 7, love bears all things. 
Now, here's the list of all things. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and these are all closely related. Love bears all things. It literally means to put up with anything. And right now, you've all got questions in your mind. But how long, how often, how many times should I forgive my brother? You've heard that question asked before, right? In the pages of Scripture. Seven times? which would have been pretty generous. Jesus telling Peter, 70 times 7. Keep going. Love bears all things. Puts up with anything. This does not mean there's never a time to speak truth, to help someone grow. It's not saying that. But it says it will continue to bear. What if tomorrow you got a letter in the mail to you from God. And it said, I've had enough. I'm done. I've disciplined you. I've taught you. I've warned you. I've instructed you. But 5,372 times is enough. He doesn't do that. He bears with us always. That's what we're to demonstrate to one another. Love believes all things. This isn't speaking of gullibility. Oh, I guess there's nothing wrong. It's not talking about that. It talks about, it speaks of how you view another believer. You don't go straight to distrust. Listen, if someone's a Christian, the Holy Spirit is the strongest being in their life not their flesh. Now, the flesh is what often gets the attention of us because sometimes their fleshly response affects us. But what's stronger than their flesh is the Holy Spirit's work in their life. So, love, even when there's conflict, says, I believe there's someone greater inside of you than you're demonstrating right now, and that's where I start. That's where we start. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Richard Pratt says this, about this word, this phrase, hopes all things. We maintain a measure of optimism on the person's behalf. We're optimistic about their life. Now, again, this is written to a local body of believers. This is written for them to consider their love among one another. These are believers dealing with one another, and so we can be optimistic about the life of a believer. Flaws and all. And finally, love endures all things similar to the first statement in verse 7. Love endures all things. So, love bears all things. Love endures all things. It's a a poetic way of, of kind of framing the middle two. Believes all things, hopes all things. Love perseveres. This is the beautiful character of love. Now, this is, this is what biblical love is. Love is different in the movies. Love is different often in our minds. Love involves roses, the beach, I mean, romantic things, true friendship, togetherness. But we don't often think of bearing with, having to meet again to discuss a situation where we're sideways, couples counseling, We don't think of those things with love. 
But that's, those are pictures of biblical love. Continuing on, suffering again, being hurt again, bearing with, praying for our response toward other people. That's love. I get a front row seat to this at weddings and I do weddings. I see her and I see him right there and I'm preaching to them and they're not listening to a word of what I'm saying. They're just looking at each other. And it's very special. I love that. Do you promise to love them in sickness and in health? I do. No, no, hold on. That means debilitating disease. That, 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 do you know what that could look like? I do. <laughs> and you, you, okay, Lord, help them. You know, we've all been there, those of us who are married. Love takes work, and it's not easy. Will they continue to love and be enthralled with one another when the money situation isn't what they thought it would be? When they've been forced to be the caregiver of their spouse for six years now and the disease, the, the malady isn't going away, and will this last for the rest of our time on earth? I don't know. Will it throw in the towel or will it continue to demonstrate love by enduring and giving and caring in oftentimes some very different ways than you expected when you stood there on your wedding day? Will love continue when the spouse has acted selfishly for months and even years? Will the love continue? And I just highlight that example because we so often think of this in terms of the marriage relationship, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's appropriate to do that. Single people, single people looking for a spouse. The characteristics of verses 4 through 7, by the grace of God, are what you're looking for. It's more than beauty. It's more than, well, we just, you know, have the same interests. You don't have to have the same interests to have a thriving marriage. What you're looking for is the list given in 4 through 7. And no one's perfect, but, but this is what's demonstrated by the person you're looking for. So consider how your future spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend treats the people that they're close to. Do they love like this? Do they show their parents love like this? Their church love like this? The people around them, do they show them love like this? Or is it something different? Their beauty will not win the day. The character of love will be what unites a couple and brings blessing to that couple. Again, I'm not talking about perfection, but this is the direction of the person that you're looking to join yourself to in this life. Church member, joining a new church always starts off well. I mean, they've got things for my kids, and, you know, they teach in the Bible, and it's good location. I mean, this is great. This is going to always be awesome and easy. Now, none of us say that, but we do kind of operate as if that's what's expected sometimes. Everybody treats me well. 
all the time. Everyone's so warm and welcoming. But what about when they're not? What about when there's a dispute? What about when they've wronged you, literally sinned against you? Do we use that as justification for then talking bad about them? Do we use that as justification to being angry, sinfully angry? Love doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. That's not the response of being sinned against to being sinned against. So they've not met all my needs in all the ways that I've wanted them to meet the needs. Can you bear with? Can you endure? Or will you just go find another imperfect place that will do that again at some point? Or what about when people in the church haven't changed enough for you or changed fast enough for you? Can you endure? Can you bear with? Can you pray for? Can you continue to do good to? Can you continue to serve? Or is it time to leave and find another imperfect place? I've been thinking lately about how often God places us in a difficult situations in order to grow us. He doesn't grow us by ease. <laughs> he grows us by difficulty. And so to continue leaving difficult situations, marriages, friendships, families, churches, because it's not easy and not comfortable and really, really hurts, doesn't build endurance and even character. Even our Lord is said to have learned obedience through suffering. And His humanity got stronger over time because of suffering. That, that's our path. That's one of the reasons the prosperity gospel is so harmful. God did not promise us ease in this life. His presence, oh yes. A resounding and foundational joy in us that can endure, yes. Ease, no. So love takes work. But when it's done, it's beautifully displayed. It is beautifully displayed. To see two friends come back together after conflict, two Christian brothers, two Christian sisters, is a beautiful thing. To see two brothers and sisters in conflict and separate is what everyone else does. Therefore, not unique to the world. Christians should be different in the world. And when we are, it's beautifully, love is beautifully displayed. So how are you different from the world? How do you love different from the rest of the world? When you love and the love isn't reciprocated, you're not treated as you'd want to be treated, how are you any different than your non-Christian neighbor who leaves and flees and distances themselves? I read you earlier, John 15, this is my commandment that as I've loved you, you love one another. The very next verse says this, greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. This is Jesus saying, if you continue loving one another, and those men didn't always love one another. They competed against one another. They looked down on one another. They measured themselves according to one another. But Jesus is saying, if you do what I've told you, namely love, then you're my friends. That demonstrates that you're my friends. It can be proven that you're really my friends 
When you live like me, it shows that you've been changed by me. Turn, if you will, to 1 John 4. This is a passage to underline, highlight, whatever you need to, to have it jump out to you in the future. 1 John 4. Starting in verse 7, John, the one who himself knew of Jesus Christ's love so intimately, so preciously, said this, Beloved, loved ones, let us love one another, because love is from God. See his logic there? Like everyone, Canyon Bible Church of Prescott? Uh, you know, I'm thinking of making you look around the room at each other right now, but I won't. I, I get it. But if I were to have you look around the room at each other, let's love one another because love is from God. It originates with God. John also tells us that God is love. The Bible doesn't say that God is wrath. It says that He is love. Now, why does He have wrath? Because He's loving. And you mistreat one another. He loves his creation, his creatures so much that when there's wrongdoing, there's wrath because of his love. God is love. So let us love love one another because God is love. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So... Just saying you're a Christian because you grew up in a Christian home doesn't make it true. Have you been born again? Has He given you a new heart? If He's given you a new heart, that will show itself in loving one another. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, in this way, the love of God was made manifest or shown among us. So, so John's saying, okay, you want to know, I've just said God is love. You want to know how he's love? Here's the chief way to know that he's love. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Here's how you know God loves you. He sent his son for you. Th- there's no greater demonstration of love. That's why Jesus said, Jesus, the son of God, when he was on earth, he said, greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You want to know love? I'm dying for you. Verse 10, in this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, to stand in the way, to absorb the wrath of God for our sins. Here's how we know love. God sent his son for us. So verse 11, loved ones, If God loved us in that way, it's what so loved us means. If God loved us in that way to send his son to die for our sins, if he loved us in that way, we also ought to love one another. Do you you see what Jesus has done in John? Do you see what John himself is doing in 1 John? It's taking the love that God the Father has given us through Jesus' son and assuming, commanding, exhorting that we would then pour that on one another, treat one another in that same way. That's the plan for followers of Christ. And you know what happens when we do that? 
people get a picture of our Lord. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. Ask your coworker, ask your neighbor, what's God look like? Well, I don't know. But you can say, what do you think God's like? And they should be able to look at the love that you share with other people and say, I think that that's something of what God looks like. No one's ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides. He remains. He's with us. And His love is perfected in us. His love is shown in us. You want people to see God? Love the difficult people you've committed to. That's the argument from John. So back to 1 Corinthians 13. Love's hard work. Love is hard work, but when the work is done, it's a beautiful thing. So place that person who's hard to love in your mind. They're probably already there. Place them there in your mind. And place them maybe 15 feet in front of you down a path, okay? You're already thinking of them. They're 15 feet down the path. Now put this list of 15 things in verses 4 to 7 in between you and them and consider what it's like to see them through verses 4 to 7. See that person and think this about your response to them. Love is patient and kind, does not envy or boast, is not arrogant, you're moving closer toward them now, or rude, does not insist on its own way, is not irritable or irritated with them, is not resentful, doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You bring your heart through those. You repent and confess and pursue them. You bring your heart through all those. It will lead you right to them. That's what should be done. And when that's done, it's a beautiful thing because it's an extraordinary thing. It's not normal. The world's not used to that. When we live that way, we look a lot like God. And that's what the world needs to see. They need to see God and His mercy. Finally, third proof of the excellence of love in verses 8 to 13, love is eternally present. Love is eternally present. The spiritual gifts we need in this life will end. This is his argument. They're so much taking pride in their spiritual gifts. And he's saying, guys, those are going to go away one day. The more excellent way that I'm talking to you about, love, that will continue on forever. Verse 8, love never ends. Love will always exist. In contrast, as for prophecies, the things that you're so much taking pride in, I get words from God. I speak them. They're infallible. I help build up the church. Look at me. Paul's saying, that's going to go away. That's temporary. That's for a time. That's for right now because the church needs it right now. It's going to go away. There's something greater that will be here 50 million and seven years from now. Love. I want you, Corinthian church, to focus aim at, pursue love for one another. That is what will always be true. 
Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. They will stop. The communication of the works of God so that people can hear them in their own language. And as I've argued before, that was for a time prior to the Scriptures. See the lessons a few weeks back. Those tongues, those gifts, just like prophecy, they will cease. They're not here forever. As for knowledge, and as I told you before, knowledge, the gift of knowledge was connected to teaching. People given knowledge from God to teach the Scriptures. Remember, they didn't have the Scriptures all assembled at this time, the New Testament Scriptures. But God gave them these truths so that they would stand up, point to passages in the Old Covenant, connect things, make God's Word known to people, make His will known, make His character known. This gift of knowledge won't always exist. It'll pass away. Now, here's where people try to debate. Okay, when will tongues cease? When is the perfect? What's... That's not the aim of Paul here. That might be the aim of people today. I'm trying to figure that out from this verse. He's just simply trying to say the spiritual gifts that help people when, we have, when we're in a situation of limited understanding before we get to heaven, those things are going to pass away because they won't be needed in the future. But love will always be there. That's what he's pointing to. So these three public speaking gifts, prophecy, tongues, knowledge, or teaching, are the flaunted gifts in the Corinthian church, the prized gifts in the Corinthian church. And Paul wants them to take their eyes off of these prized gifts and to put them on love. These gifts, these prized gifts, are adapted for this age. They helped people there in Corinth because they needed that. And these gifts were wonderful gifts to the church. We'll see that more in 1 Corinthians 14 beautiful gifts from God to His church, but they're not forever. When Christ comes, we will fully know Him, fully understand, as He fully knows us, and these gifts won't be needed anymore. You won't need a Bible teacher when Christ comes. You'll see Him as He is. You'll get it. Verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. The perfect, I'm arguing, as most people argue, is when Christ comes, when Christ returns. We know in part, we prophesy in part. Remember Paul earlier saying, if I have, if I have knowledge of all mysteries, if I have these perfect prophetic utterances, this perfect teaching from God, if I know the mind of God totally, but that's, again, hyperbole. Here he says, we know in part and prophesy in part. Paul knows what God's taught him, but he knows there's a lot more that he doesn't know yet. That's with every Bible teacher. Later on, we're having a teaching through the book of Hosea. And I'm betting that someone during that teaching at some point asks a question that I can't understand. I don't know everything about the Bible. (laughs) But hopefully people are served by Bible teachers, but Bible teachers don't know everything. The apostles didn't know everything themselves. The prophets, Old Testament prophets, didn't know everything that they were writing, all the ways that God will fulfill all these things they were writing. We know in part, we prophesy in part, and that's meant to be helpful. Ephesians 4 says that apostles, prophets, teachers are meant to be a gift to the church, but there's coming a time when you'll have greater knowledge than me or anybody else can share with you. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. 
Verse 11, he uses this illustration of time. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. He's connecting that to this day and age. We know some things, but we don't know everything. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. So he's showing that there's a difference between knowing some things and knowing more things like an adult. I mean, I mean a child's reasoning is flawed, right? I remember coming home when we used to live in Los Angeles, coming home from visiting family members about five miles, or sorry, five hours north of LA, visiting my sister Marcy, and we just had uh, our two oldest boys, Weston and Gabriel, and we were coming down, and it was one of those long trips, two little boys, and man, will we ever get home? <laughs> and uh, we were in Bakersfield, maybe four-fifths of the way home, and one of the boys says, can we go back to Auntie Marcy's? That is horrible logic. That is not a good idea. Now, I love my son, but that's a childish way of thinking. We're just one more mountain pass and we're home. We're not turning around. Children don't always logically make the most sense. All of our kids, all of us when we were children, we, we thought foolish things. And so Paul's saying, we didn't have all the information then. Now as adults, we've got the information. Here's why that would be a bad idea, because I'm aware of more, more things. So Paul's just trying to show, as children, we know this much and make our decisions. As adults, we know a lot more. We can make better decisions. He's connecting that to this age. We see some things, we understand some things, but compared to heaven, childish right now. In the future, we'll get it. That's what he's doing. For now, and he gives a different illustration, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. We can see certain things. Praise God that we can see these things. But it's dimly. There will be a time where we literally see Jesus Christ face to face, and we will understand things that we maybe should have understood before but didn't get. Or maybe things that hadn't been revealed yet that we'll see. We will see and understand and know fully. Now I know in part, Paul says. Notice he doesn't say, now you Corinthians know in part. He includes himself there. Now I know in part, then I'll know fully, even as I've been fully known. So God doesn't need to wait until the end of this earth and when we have the new heavens and new earth to know us fully. He knows us fully now. We don't know him fully now. We know the things he's revealed to us right now, but we know partially we will know fully as, like, as in the same way that he right now knows us fully. We'll, we'll understand. So now... Faith, hope, and love abide. Notice he gives three. Faith, hope, and love remain. Faith, hope, and love will remain into the future. Now he's contrasting that with the three spiritual gifts that he told would go away. And they're just a representation of the spiritual gifts there, but they're the ones that they prized and prided themselves in. Prophetic utterances, tongues, and the knowledge for teaching. So those things are going to go away when Christ returns. But faith, hope, and love will remain. In our glorified state, 
we will trust in Christ and that His salvation of us is eternal, that won't end. He, he will always be the one that we trust. Hope will always remain. We will always trust that for all eternity, <clears throat> He will do what's right to us. He will continue to be our hope, be our security, and love will always remain. Love belongs to God. Love has always belonged to God. There was never a time, this is what makes us different than the Jehovah's Witnesses, there was never a time when God did not love or have an object of love to love. God the Son has always existed. God the Father has always loved Him. There's always been love. Love belongs to God has been poured out onto us. We've been shown love and also empowered to be loving to others. Love existed in eternity past. Father loving the Son, Son loving the Father, and will exist into eternity future as we are loved by the Father and the Son, as they continue loving one another and sharing their love with us. We will love the Father perfectly. We will love the Son perfectly as they continue to perfectly love us through all eternity. And we will love one another perfectly. Love will always exist. Perfect love. So why is love so excellent? Because it's unlike the other spiritual gifts that are temporal. Love lasts forever. So brothers and sisters, know that God wants you to major in love right now. We're not allowed to say from this passage, okay, well, I know one day I'll love perfectly in heaven. Right now, I'm going to do whatever I want. Paul's writing in today's world to this church for them to put on love. Know that God wants you to major in love. Know also why love is so excellent, and we've rehearsed that in our three points. We need love, it's beautiful, and it's everlasting. And finally, work at love. Work at it. Work at it by the power of Christ. Jonathan Edwards famously preached a sermon on these final verses, 8 through 13. It's a wonderful sermon called Heaven is a World of Love. I encourage you to read it. I'm going to read you a portion of it just to remind us of what we have coming so that we are then motivated to bring as much of heaven to earth as we can right now as we love Edward says this, as the saints will love God with an inconceivable fervency of heart and to the utmost of their capacity, they will know that He's loved them from all eternity and still loves them and will continue to love them forever. So he's saying, one day we will love Him with such fervent hearts that we all wish we have right now. We wish we could love Christ more, right? Praise Him more be affected by Him more, love the Father more. We, we wish that that was true right now. All of us are in the same place in that sense. As the old hymn says, more love to Thee, O Christ, more love to Thee. That, that's what we cry. But one day, we will love Him like we should. That's what Edwards is saying. All the saints will love God with an inconceivable fervency of heart. And God will then gloriously show Himself to them, and they will know that all the happiness and glory which they have in heaven are the fruits of His love. All the joy, 
all the bliss, all the blessings, all the rewards, all that we will enjoy in heaven, we will know forever. That's because He's giving that to me, continues to give that to me. Edwards continues, and with the same ardor and fervency will the saints love the Lord Jesus Christ, and their love will be accepted, and they will know that He's loved them with a faithful, yes, even a dying love. Love will be the theme of heaven. Heaven is a world of love. So, brothers and sisters, work at loving one another because that's what the children of God do. They resemble their Father. He's loved us from eternity past. He loves us now, and He'll continue to love us for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, give us the tenacity to love in the way that You and Your Son have loved us. Give us the patience. Give us the strength. Give us a greater desire to make peace rather than be comfortable. Father, would You give us difficult conversations with one another rather than just ending relationships? Would You give us the ability to mediate conflict with one another rather than divorce one another, walk away from one another. Father, as we believe in Your Son and receive Your Holy Spirit, we do have all that we need for life and godliness. Remind us of that, please. Make us increasingly a forbearing church, an enduring church, a patient church, a warm church, a loving church. And Father, may that, may that help us in our witness, in our testimony, in our evangelism. I pray for adult family members, adult children, young children, people who know us, that they would be one to Christ because we see, they see us demonstrating Him to them. May they not see irritability or lack of patience or resentment or a record of wrongs. May they see grace, endurance, patience, long-suffering, and may that help them to know you, Father. Father, so many prayers to continue praying in this regard, but we pray that you'd answer these according to your son's will and in his name. Amen.